This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we come to your scriptures, as we come to your word, that we would have eyes to see our risen Lord. Lord, open our hearts that we may receive him anew this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love stories. I love how a good story draws us in. How a good story, whether true or fictitious, compels us. How it resonates within us. And so often, a good story, without warning, draws out our emotions, our experiences. Our fears and our longings, our fondest memories, our greatest nightmares our desires for purpose, for friendship, for the hope that all will one day be made right. These are the marks of a good story, a story that resonates within. And our gospel reading today is actually an incredible story. If we really think about it, it's a surprising story. Just chapters before this, Luke has written of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, of how one of his own betrayed him for silver, of his final hours with those who he most dearly loved, of how they then abandoned him, of his torture, his murder, and his burial. And then our chapter, chapter 24, begins with Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and some other women going to visit Jesus' tomb and finding it empty that Easter morning, of how they were greeted by two angels who declared, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. And then the story abruptly shifts. It shifts to a road outside of town to two seemingly random disciples with two seemingly random disciples heading on a journey back to a seemingly random town, one of whom we know the name of, Cleopas, and one who is left unnamed. Perhaps these were two men, perhaps it was Cleopas and his wife or another woman. Either way, these two are seemingly insignificant characters heading home after witnessing Jesus' murder that past Friday, having sat through the shocked and deafening silence of that Sabbath on Saturday. And now, on the first day of the week, on Sunday, they are going home. They're returning to the mundane, They may be returning to face friends and family members who did not follow Jesus. They're returning to face the residual shame of the cross, 
to face their identity as those who followed the crucified Messiah. They're returning with all of their grief, all of their confusion, and I'm sure all of their doubt. And they're returning to their day in and day out lives. And here is the first point in our story in which I think it resonates with us. For those of us who have experienced the death of a loved one, for those of us who have gone through trauma, it's hard to imagine how life could possibly go on, and yet it does. It goes and it goes and it goes. As we walk home to our villages, to our routines, it can be hard to imagine how anything could continue to go on. And yet it is here, in this moment, that Jesus himself shows up. The resurrected Lord himself joins these two disciples, these two followers on the road, and he walks with them. We read in verse 15, Jesus himself came near and went with them. To you and to me, these are random followers. These are random disciples, but to him they were not. No, he knew them. He even probably knew both of their names, even though we do not. He cared about them. He cared about them so much that with only 40 days left to live on this earth, he chose to spend one of them, the day that he rose, walking with them. As I reflected on this this week, I really started to wonder, how many of us believe that the Lord cares about us like that? How many of us believe that we are not just random disciples on the road outside of town? That we are those that he chooses to spend the day with, that he chooses to walk with. We are those that he has lived for, that he died for, that he rose for, and he meets us on the road. He meets us and chooses to walk with us in the midst of our grief and of our doubts and of our fears. This is who we are to him. And this is who he is. But, we read, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Does that not so often describe us? They did not recognize him. We read on, and Jesus said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? And they stood still, looking sad. I love that detail. What a powerful detail. They stood still. All that they were feeling, all that they had gone through, froze them in their tracks. They go on to tell this stranger of the death of their teacher, of the one they thought would redeem Israel. They reveal that like Thomas, the eyewitness of others, namely that of the women, was not enough to shake their despair and their grief. And this is interesting because we so often hear of how culturally significant it would have been for Jesus to have appeared first to women. 
that the word of a woman in that day and age did not hold the same weight as the word of a man. Maybe that's the sad reality that we are seeing here in our text. These two disciples, they did not, or maybe in the midst of their grief, they could not believe the testimony of the women. And in that place of grief and despair, the risen Lord speaks. And he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. Jesus heard them. He walked with them in the midst of their grief and in their pain. And then he told them a different story. He told them a greater story. He began to show them how their scriptures, what we would consider the Old Testament, all pointed to him. Perhaps he recalled for them the writings of Moses in Genesis, of how he, Jesus, was the promised seed, the child of Adam and Eve who would crush the head of the serpent, the evil one. How he was the fulfillment to the promise to Abraham that through, all, that through them all the nations of the world would be blessed. Perhaps he recalled the story of Isaac who was spared by the life of another, by a ram caught in the thicket. Perhaps, well, he most certainly would have drawn their minds back to the Exodus, pointing out how his life, his baptism and death made sense of it all of the Passover in which those who placed their faith in God were spared by the blood of an innocent lamb, how they were delivered from slavery, how they were saved through the waters, and how they were journeying through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. I'm sure he spoke of King David who was promised that one of his offspring would be seated on the throne forever, explaining to them that he was that king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Or the words of Isaiah who prophesied of one who would be pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment for our well-being was laid upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We don't know which stories he told them. Maybe he told them all of them. Maybe he told them far more than all of this. What we do know is that he drew their minds to the reality that he was the fulfillment of them all. He was their fullness. This belief and this practice that we hold to as Christians, that all scripture points to Christ, this is not something that the church merely invented. This is how our risen Lord taught us to read the scriptures starting day one after his resurrection. It is he, as Paul writes in Ephesians 1 verse 23, who fills all in all. He told these disciples on the road, he told them the true story behind all good stories. He told them the story that their hearts were longing for. 
The story of good versus evil, of life conquering death, of hope for the hopeless, of humanity being invited yet again to walk with God. This was the story that their hearts longed for. And these individuals on the road to Emmaus seemed to know it. For after they had made it to their home and invited him to eat with them, after he broke the bread in an act of hospitality towards them, after their eyes were opened to who he truly was and after he had disappeared miraculously from their presence, they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? Were not our hearts burning? They encountered the risen Lord. They encountered he who fills all in all. The fulfillment of all of their hopes, of all of their longings. The one who had redeemed Israel, who has redeemed us back to God. And their hearts burned within them. I don't know about you, but I can imagine what this must have felt like because I've experienced this glorious heartburn uh, many times in my walk with the Lord. This week, I thought back to being 11 or 12 years old, of attending a talk given by a guest speaker at my home church that my sister let me tag along to. And honestly, I can't remember what he talked about. I don't remember what he said. I just remember what I heard and how I came away from it. I remember that he explained to us, in some words, uh, that we were truly, truly forgiven and redeemed back to God. That I was loved unconditionally by my Heavenly Father. And I remember my heart burning inside of me and swelling with joy as the tears streamed down my face and the waves of his love crashed over me. My heart burned as I heard the greater story of Christ. My heart burned as I was invited to see myself in light of his story, of him. My heart burned within me just last Sunday, too, as we sang Our Great God at the 9 o'clock service, right? We sang these words, Eternal God, unchanging, mysterious, and unknown, your boundless love unfailing and grace and mercy shown. Bright seraphim in ceaseless flight around your glorious throne, they raise their voices day and night in praise to you alone. As we sang that, my heart burned within me because I realized yet again that that God that we are speaking of, that we are we are declaring in his glory, the glory that fills the throne room, the glory that causes angels and men and women to sing his praises without ceasing. That glorious one came among us, that he is among us. We, as the pastors here at your church, we have had a, um, the honor and the privilege over the past few weeks to walk with some of you as you have been going through some incredibly hard things. 
as we have looked sickness and death and trauma and pain in the face together. And my heart burned within me as I realized that the very God in that glorious vision of heaven walks with us even now, is with us even now. This is the story that we are called to remember. This is the story of he who fills all in all. And there is power when we remember and we rehearse this most true story. As Kurt Thompson, a Christian psychiatrist, writes regarding memory, he says, long before memory became an important field of scientific inquiry, the ancients knew that what we remember profoundly affects our relationship with everything around us. So much of the life that each of us lives, in fact, is one that is remembered. In this sense, part of working out our salvation includes paying attention to how the act of remembering the past simultaneously creates future in our minds. How we remember the past simultaneously creates the future in our minds. We, like the disciples on the road, we so desperately long to see ourselves, need to see ourselves in light of the story of Christ, in the reality of the resurrected one. We need to remember that purpose, comfort, satisfaction, and peace that we desperately long for, they are found in him. It is as we encounter the Lord, as we reflect seeing ourselves in light of this greatest story, that our present and our future will be shaped and changed. But remembering like this is difficult. I'm sure that those poor two disciples on the road would not be the only ones told, oh, how foolish you are. There are so many narratives competing for our attention, for our hearts and our minds, narratives within and narratives around us. And this is why we need Christ. On our own, we are like those disciples. We are blind to what is right in front of us. We are blind to the hope and the life that is all around us. We need Christ to open our eyes. We need to see him revealed in his word. We need to see him revealed in this great story of redemption. This is also why we need his body, our sisters and our brothers. Because on our own, we can struggle to see the Lord. It's often through one another that we encounter him most clearly. Through a word spoken, or an act of compassion from a sister or a brother in a moment of undeserved grace and forgiveness extended. These are the divine intersections in which our mundane story and his glorious story collide, where we are invited to something far greater, far more life-giving than the narratives that we have woven for ourselves or that have been woven for us. May we have eyes to see the ways that he walks with us even now, 
May we have ears to hear his still more lovely story. And may we know the hope that is ours in our risen Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.